Many of you uh, were here as Pastor Nick preached through um, the book of Genesis, and of course he's continued on into Exodus. And one of the things that he mentioned several times along the way that is just a fascinating observation to make about the Hebrew canon in particular, but really takes place, um, has impacts throughout the entirety of Scripture, is that Hebrew literary technique where they don't write just in that linear fashion. You know, that's, that's our tendency, that's that Greek um, backdrop that we kind of have where we just start the story here, it builds to a climax, and then, you know, it has its resolution, and then, you know, the ending. But with the Hebrews and the way that they write, they, there's something there, and, you know, it kind of goes, it tells the story, if you think of a circle, but then that, that story gets repeated, but when it's repeated, what it's doing is it's drawing, and so it's intentionally repeated in a different setting. So it's drawing backdrop that the reader should know or have some sense of what happened the previous time, and they import that into it happening again, only there's a new set of circumstances and there's greater understanding the second time that that happens with a different cast of characters. And so we see this take place throughout uh, the Old Testament in particular where these things happen and they kind of recycle and pick up more information and they're always pointing back while they're still teaching in the present and also they have the effect of pointing in the future as well. And I know that one of the um, descriptors I heard somebody say once is that it's, you know, if you think of a slinky in a way, it's moving forward, but it's also kind of going in a circle like that. But within that Hebrew way of communicating, it's adding more information, but you don't want to just look at what happens in that single uh, event. You want to try to see how that connects to the, the uh, previous events, the previous historical events that took place that provides you greater context of what's happening in the current. And we see that unfold in the New Testament as well. And if you were also here when I first began the book of Acts, one of the things that I pointed to was in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, what we saw was actually an undoing of the Tower of Babel. And I walked through that, how the events of the Tower of Babel actually informs how it is that we look at Pentecost and lots of these different connections so that we have a fuller understanding of what God was doing. And he took an event that was sovereignly under his control, even though it was an evil event, and what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And then centuries later, millennia later, really, he actually demonstrates the inverse of that and unfolds that in a historical setting to communicate in a richer way. Well, you may not have realized it, and so I'm kind of excited to show this to you, honestly. But in verses 8 through 15 of chapter 6 of Acts, we see another one of these things happening. One of the biggest events in the Old Testament is the Exodus. And in the event of the Exodus, much of what is being communicated is that it is a time of transition. Prior to the physical exodus, so prior to 
the, uh, the Jews passing through the Red Sea on dry ground, they are a people that are the descendants of patriarchs, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, eventually then you have the 12 tribes and they're all there, but they're all known as being children of Abraham as their primary identity. And it's actually through the event of Exodus that they transition from being a large group of children of these patriarchs to becoming an actual nation of becoming the nation of Israel. So there's a sense in which during the Exodus event, there is a, um, uh, there's a, like a gathering together. There's a merging that takes place, partic particularly as it relates to their identity. They were Jews, to be sure. They were children of Abraham, to be sure. But after going through the Exodus event, they were actually known as the nation of Israel. And not only on a large scale do we see that, we also see then on a small scale, one of the individuals, and you might say the primary individual involved in that whole transition in that whole time period, was Moses. So we have a significant event that points to something deeply uh, meaningful historically and has theological connections that are pointing forward and that is also being led by an individual, that being Moses. And what we have here in our text today in Acts chapter 6 is again a transition that's taking place and that again is being led by one person and that again is the inverse of the original. So, at this point in Acts chapter 6, the true Israel had already come. And what's happening through Stephen in Acts is an undoing of that ethnic boundary that was created by God through Abraham. God pulled Abraham, made him something out of nothing, and created a people to be his own through the 12 tribes now they have grown, they go through the Exodus event, they're kind of merged or sealed in a sense into the identity of a specific nation, something for which the Jews took great pride in, in being the nation of Israel. But then by the time we get to chapter 6, what we're actually reading is the inverse of that, which is the undoing of that ethnic boundary, the removal of the boundary, and the expansion of the kingdom. So when we see this, what we know is it's not like God made a mistake in the beginning and thought, okay, well, I need a redo. I need to go at this maybe a different way. We can, we're able to look at what took place in that Exodus event and say, okay, what does that do? How does that inform what we see in Acts chapter 6? And what we see is that what was begun in the Old Testament and in the uh, event of the Exodus is actually completed and fulfilled in the New Testament and actually specifically right here in Acts chapter 6. And so we're, what we're going to get is a bit of a retelling of the inverse of what took place in one respect in the Exodus. Early in my uh, police career, one of, the, uh, one of the most memorable events 
I, uh, I had when I first started my career is, uh, and part of it's because I'm a, I am a sports fan, is at that particular time, it was 1998, and the Arizona Cardinals were, uh, were still playing at ASU's stadium. They didn't have their own stadium at that time. And they, it was the final game of the regular season. And for the first time in 16 years, if they were to win that game, they would make it into the playoffs. The Cardinals hadn't been in the, the playoffs for 16 years. And the uh, ASU has their own police department, but they knew this was gonna be a huge game. The place was sold out and they needed assistance with security on the field and other areas. Well, I got the opportunity then to be on the field itself while the game was going on. And um, so I would, I would watch the crowd and then in between plays, and then I would just turn around and watch a play, and then I'd turn around and watch the crowd. And, and so that was my way of being able to enjoy the whole experience. But this is what happens. Here's the point, is that they win the game on a kick as, the buzz, as, the, as time runs out, okay? They win. This is a huge ordeal for, for all football, local football fans. And so I have this distinct, it's a slide I have in my memory where the place is absolutely erupting and going crazy, and I'm looking at one end of the end zone where I'm watching, I'm seeing the fences and I'm seeing all the people, and as I'm standing there, I see one guy jump over the fence. And I see him, and it starts to register, and just as it starts to register that one guy jumped over the fence, six people jumped over the fence. You probably see where this is headed. And no sooner do I register the six people jumped over the fence, you know, 38 people jumped over the fence. And within seconds, it poured, people poured onto the field. Now, in today's world, um, if you go to any sporting events, they, they actually account for that and they open gates and they lay the, they lay the goalpost down and everything. But at that time, they did not do that. At that time, it was, uh, you know, you were expected to hold the line, and I watched this happen, and it was just, it was crazy. It was exciting and absolutely overwhelming. And what I'm getting at by telling you that story is the fact that when I read about what takes place right here with Stephen, I, in my mind, imagine the one guy, after everybody's cheering and there's a, that pregnant pause that went over the fence, because then four more go over and 38 more go over. And, then, and so we know that as we progress through Acts, the most famous guy that gets a, a whole lot of credit, and rightfully so, for him, for taking the gospel to the world is Paul. He's known as the apostle to the Gentiles. However, if you look prior to Paul and you roll that back, what you do is you get to Stephen. Stephen is the first one that starts to communicate this message outside of that specifically um, Jewish within Jerusalem community as it, as it starts to spill out. He's that first guy going over the fence. And what I hope to point out to you today is the fact that the way that God grew his church at that specific time and in those specific circumstances is the exact same way that God is growing his church today. He is doing the same thing through his people. But Stephen was the first guy 
to go over the fence. So I've already, in some respects, answered the first question there on the, uh, that I put in the outline on the, on the back. As God grows his church, as he expands his kingdom, it absolutely comes with expectations. You might even say great expectations. And the first thing that we want to look at is to ask the question, well, who does God expect to do it? And I've got two things for you, one out of each verse there of 8 and 9. And um, the answer, which I just gave you, is Stephen, right? Well, he's the guy who is supposed to do it. In fact, back in Acts 6, verse 3, when we looked at that uh, previous passage last week, in, in 6, verse 3, remember we had this whole dispute going on? Um, there was this cultural divide, and, and so they needed to find some guys that could help the, uh, the widows that were from the Greek-speaking Jews. And so in, in verse 3, uh, who they're supposed to pick are a group of men that are brothers. Pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So that's what they were tasked with doing. And Stephen, then, is one of the people picked from this. So there are people, there are folks from the exterior that recognize within Stephen these character traits because they chose him to carry out this task of taking care of the widows, good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom. But now we get down to verse 8, where we're not just relying on what other people observed about Stephen. We actually get scripture itself. We get God directly attributing to Stephen uh, these characteristics. So at verse 8, it says, and Stephen, so this is the same guy, full of grace and power. So we got, okay, well, who is going to do, who is expected to carry out this task? Well, it's expected that it's going to be a man that is full of grace and full of power. And second of all, that is doing great wonders and signs. I'm hopeful at this point you know exactly where I'm going with this. If not, then enjoy it for the first time again, which is that God does not have men. He does not endow them with these miraculous powers to heal people, to demonstrate wonders, and to do signs because he wants them to think well of him and because he's all about random acts of kindness. He does this for the specific purpose of providing authenticity to the person that's doing it, to them and to their message. They did not have, at that time, the New Testament scriptures. They didn't have the New Testament canon to refer to, which meant these men, and specifically, going back to the first guy over the fence, Stephen is proclaiming this message to people, stuff that they've never heard before. He's telling them things about the fact that the temple has been fulfilled and Christ has come and that he is the fulfillment of these things. And so in doing that, God provides him an, a, a method of showing them that what he's saying is absolutely true, right? Just like the prophets of old, if, you know, to, to see if what the prophet is saying is true, did, did what they say happen? In a similar way, he's performing wonders and he's performing signs so that they can see, wow, whatever it is is going on with this guy, he has God's approval to do it. So we know that he's got to be full of the spirit, that he's got to be full of wisdom, and that he is also authenticated by God. 
and that the message that he's bringing is an authentic and a legitimate message. Well, here's the second thing that we realize in verse 9 about who it is that God expects to take this, uh, to expand his kingdom in the world, and it's Stephen's connection to the very people that he's preaching to. Verse 9 says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those of Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. So what's helpful for us in, in listing this is that these are regions in North Africa. And the fact that it is referred to as a synagogue of freedmen is what they believe is that either this synagogue that is um, inside Jerusalem, but it is made up of former slaves from the area in areas in North Africa, or perhaps even more likely than the slaves themselves, is their descendants. So a synagogue has been brought together of these men that are descendants of those that happened to be, were previously in slavery in North Africa and these other areas that are listed, you know, uh, Cyrenians and Alexandrians, Cilician. These are all areas, and the important thing to pull out of that is that is what they're not. What they're not is died in the wool, born and raised Jerusalem families. Remember in the previous account what the cultural divide was. There, the church is growing within Jerusalem which started the serving of the widows, and then all of a sudden there's a cultural divide that grew between those that spoke Aramaic and those that were the Greek-speaking Jews. So what's being communicated here by us knowing where these people are from and what this synagogue is associated with is we know that these are Greek-speaking Jews within the synagogue. Stephen was selected to care for. He himself is a Greek-speaking Jew, or as it's listed here, he's known, it's being called a Hellenist. That just means they're a Greek-speaking Jew. And so what Stephen has been selected in this role because he crosses that divide of being a Greek-speaking Jew, and now not only is he providing for the widows, but he is actually preaching in this synagogue to other Greek-speaking people. He is among his own people. So when we consider, well, who does God expect to do this? The answer is, well, it's got to be somebody that's full of the Spirit. It's got to be somebody that's full of wisdom. It's got to be somebody that has an authentic and a legitimate and a divinely given message and that has the ability to communicate with their own people. They're in their comfort zone, in a sense, because they have some standing. He has some standing with these particular people. They are Greek-speaking Jews. He is a Greek-speaking Jews. And it's these very people, his own people, that are disputing with him. That's how verse 9 finishes, that those are the ones that rose up and disputed with Stephen. All right, well, I hope that what you're seeing here is that the real answer to the first thing of who God expects to do it 
you know that's you, right? You have the Holy Spirit. You have the divinely inspired and legitimate message of the gospel. You are already armed with these things. You live among a people that understand your culture because you are in the same culture. You have an authenticated message in your hands of God's truth. Therefore, yes, of course, Stephen is that first guy that's over the fence. But just, in the, just as it is in the context of how does God build his church today is the same way that he built it then, you are the person that is expected to go out into the world with this message. Well, what is it that you are expected to do? And we see our answer to that question in verse 10, where it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Now, there is a, uh, I need to tell you about a, a literary word. You don't have to remember the word. It's not important that you do, but it's called a hendiadus. And a hendiadus just means that when somebody takes two different words and they, and they combine them together to mean a singular thing. We do it all the time. Um, you might say something is uh, nice and warm or they're comfy and cozy. What you don't mean is it's comfortable and it's cozy, or it's nice separately from being warm. When you say these things, they're turns of phrases that you say together um, uh, to, to mean really a singular idea. And this happens in the Bible as well. In fact, in Mark chapter 11, verse 24, it says, the ESV has translated it, whatever you ask in prayer. But if you look at the Greek, it actually says, whatever you ask and pray. But in that verse, it's not communicating that there's something different in asking than there is in praying. It's a hendiatus. It just means, hey, whatever you ask in prayer, even though the literal translation says, whatever you ask and whatever you pray. Well, the same thing is happening here, but the translators, the ESV, chose to keep it as its... Um, as it's woodenly or explicitly translated, so it, said, it's, so it appears to be separated, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit. These are not two separate things, like, oh, they couldn't withstand his wisdom, and then separately they couldn't withstand his spirit. The idea here is that they could not withstand his spiritual wisdom. And that's important because when we ask ourselves, okay, well, if we know who it is that was expected to go about expanding the kingdom, and the, the answer at this time was Stephen, and of course uh, um, is associated to us, and then the next question is, well, then what was Stephen expected to do, which of course then is going to apply to us, the answer is to bring the spiritual wisdom of God's word to bear on the world. Pastor PJ and I did not coordinate on this, but he uh, pulled for his law and gospel verses that I'm going to point out to you. Um, but first is 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18 to 19. When we think about taking spiritual wisdom to this world, consider what 1 Corinthians 3, 18 and 19 says. It says, let no one deceive himself. 
If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. The wisdom of this world is folly. This world has a pervasive message that says your personal happiness is the absolute highest priority. Full stop. At any cost. If you are unhappy in your marriage, the marriage is expendable to accommodate your happiness. If being pregnant infringes on your happiness, get an abortion. After all, you deserve to be happy. If you disagree with your biological gender and you feel that you would be fulfilled in this world if you could be a different gender, then that is your right. You get to do that. This, this, is, the, this is the message of the world. And certainly anything associated with a dollar sign means, well, you get a pass on that. So if it is financially beneficial for you to lie in some way, to cheat in some way, to not pay your taxes, to cook the books just a little bit, I mean, come on, it's, it's under that financial umbrella, so you can't expect that to uh, not, that, expect somebody not to do what is in their financial best interest, which feeds into their own personal happiness. And the Bible is saying that kind of thinking, that entire mindset is evil. That is the way that the world thinks. They say you are number one, which is why what Scripture says appears to be folly. And why in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verses 20 to 21, we get something that actually is very, uh, very encouraging. And I say that because if you are hearing this and you realize, okay, you are the one responsible to take this divinely appointed message into the world and that this is the manner in which the church universal and the church local grows, and you know that you are to take the spiritual wisdom of the Word of God to bear on the world, what you don't have to do is to have a prepared argument for everything that the world throws at you. In fact, the Sunday School series that Pastor PJ has been going through has repeated that over and over. Even though we've been looking at the false Jesus of Islam, the false Jesus of Mormonism, the false Jesus of these different things, the, the recurring message is just know the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is what saves people. And that is exactly what we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 20 and 21, where it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who who believe. See, when we go back to our passage here in Acts chapter 6, it says they could not withstand that spiritual wis the spiritual wisdom with which he was speaking. So when we consider 
what the Bible counts as spiritual wisdom, what that verse is not saying is that Stephen was so articulate and he was such a powerful orator and he was so silver-tongued and he was so sharp and he had such a, a deeply ingrained and, and background in apologetics that he could overcome the arguments of all of these fellow Greek-speaking Jews. That is not what they could not overcome. What they could not overcome was the actual spiritual wisdom. And the spiritual wisdom is what we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, which is the truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, which is, which is what is necessary for salvation. There is no argument in this world, no matter how many times they say it, no matter how many commercials they make about it, no matter how many celebrities they attach to the messages, there is not one message from this world that can withstand the truth of the gospel message of the scripture, of the spiritual wisdom that comes from God's word. Even if they attach the word science to it. Yeah, but it's science. Whatever. It cannot stand against the truth of God's word. So this is what we know. Who expects, who does God expect to take, to go into the world to expand the church? Well, I think we've figured that out. It's those that are filled with the Spirit, those that have a divinely um, approved message, those that are among their own people. What is it that they're supposed to carry into the world? They're supposed to carry into the world spiritual wisdom that we see in uh, verse 10 there. Now, what can we expect from the world? Now, when you go to do this, you can expect the same thing that happened to Stephen. The short answer to that question is foul play. That's what you can expect. You can expect foul play. The world, they can't stand up. None of their arguments can stand up to the truth of Scripture. So what are they going to do? They're going to cheat. And we see that happen in three different ways here. The first one is in verse 11. When the world cannot withstand the truth, you can expect them to gossip and malign you in private. Verse 11, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So that's one of the tactics you can just plan on happening. They're going to talk about you. They're going to gossip. It's going to be behind your back. It's going to be lies. And then in verse 12, when the world cannot withstand the truth, you can expect them to slander you in public. Verse 12, and they stirred up the people. See, now it's gone from secretly instigating men to verse 12, they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And then in verses 13 and 14, we see them ramp it up. So after the world against Stephen... And you can expect the same against you if you're going to take this, uh, this command, this mandate seriously, is that people are going to gossip about you behind your back. They're going to say false things and slander you in public. And then the third thing they're going to do is they're going to ramp it up and they're going to formalize their sin by creating accusations, like formal accusations. Now, it might go, it might be as formal as in a court of law where they say, hey, um, because of what you said, I'm going to sue you. 
because of what you stand for and these biblical principles. I want to try to have you arrested. But this can find its way in other formal ways. Perhaps they contact your human resources director and they say, I, I am completely and utterly offended that this person will not acknowledge that I have chosen to be a different gender, as a for instance, because you won't affirm, because you won't celebrate something that you know God's word says, no, this is sin. And when you say, well, I can't be a part of that, I can't celebrate that, I can't acknowledge that, I can't affirm that, I can't show my uh, consent, my assent for that very thing, I can't participate in that. And then what happens? You're going to get silent um, gossip, you're going to get public slander, and you're going to get formal charges of some kind. I, or I, it, the possibility exists. Can't say that it's absolutely going to happen, but we shouldn't be surprised. In other words, we should expect, you know, what should we expect from the world? We shouldn't be surprised when this takes place. It happened to Stephen. It ha there's every reason to believe that it would happen to us as well if we were going to carry out this duty for God's church. However, what I really want to point out to you is this fourth point here is what you should expect from God. And we're going to find the answer for that in verse 15. But before I kind of point out what you should expect from God, I want to make something clear, which is God doesn't, when, if you're going to be faithful and you take, this, you take this charge seriously, when you, when you say, okay, it is evident that God grew his church using a guy named Stephen that was the first guy, to, to continue my analogy, the first guy to go over the fence, and that you too are called to do the exact same thing that he was doing, to take it to the world, that, the, that, that this is exactly how the church is expanded and God's kingdom is expanded. And you know, and you're prepared to take that divinely legitimized message into a dying world, and you know and you can expect this kind of blowback. I want to relieve you, disabuse you of the thought that you have to enjoy that kind of abuse, okay? Certainly, and we looked at this in a, uh, a sermon a few weeks ago, you know, in, chapter, in Acts 5, verse 41, it says, then they left, the, this is the apostles after they were beaten and released, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Absolutely praise God if you endure suffering for the name of Jesus, then praise the Lord that you were counted worthy to do so. It also doesn't mean that you have to like being beaten, okay? The apostles, I don't think, were rejoicing in enduring beating, but they were absolutely willing to do it to endure suffering for the, for the name of Jesus Christ. And when we look at verse 15 and we consider the fact that... Um, that God is doing and promising to do something through the persecution, through the oppression that you can expect to get from the world, I want to point out a couple things. So there are two ways that we should, ex or two things that we should expect from God. And the first thing is I want to I go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10. 
is I want to point out something that's going on in Paul's life, right? Where Paul, who, again, I know that I've made the point that Stephen's that first guy over the fence, but Paul, man, he did a lot of heavy lifting. He was the, he was named the apostle to the Gentiles. So he is just constantly charting fresh territory. He is just going out among the Gentiles. He's starting churches. He's establishing elders and, and doing all this. And he is enduring a lot of abuse and dealing with a lot of difficult things. And so we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 to 10, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And I, I do want to point out in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. I do not think that Paul was sinning in any way by three times asking the Lord to remove this thorn in his flesh, whatever it was. So it is not wrong to not enjoy being beaten or being lied about or being slandered or being falsely accused, okay? However, and here we get to the first of the two ways that we sh of what it is that we should expect from God, which is verse 9, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, that says, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. No, you're not expected to enjoy them, but you're expected to be content with the lot that God has given you so that when, in the, in the sense, when you are in your synagogue of the freedmen, among your people, which might be your family, it might be your, your co-workers, it might be the community where you live in your neighborhood, those are your people. That's your synagogue of the freedmen. Those are the people that are speaking your language and that, and that know the culture and you know their culture and you are trying to communicate them the words of life and you experience this kind of either pushback, foul play, you know, oppression. What you can know is that God's grace is sufficient for you and that your power is made perfect, or that God's power is made perfect in weakness in you. It's going to be okay. He's going to carry you through. That's what you can expect. That's the first thing that you can expect is that you're going to make it. It's going to be all right. The second thing relates to this rather interesting scenario that's taking place in verse 15, right? And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. I don't know about you, I know historically I've always um, thought about when Stephen and, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be coming as we uh, keep moving through Acts 7 and 8, but, you know, Stephen's going to be stoned, spoiler alert. Um, but I always pictured Stephen having this face of an angel at the time that he's being stoned. And maybe that was the case. It doesn't say that that's what happened, but maybe that's the case. But this is what we know for a fact is actually before we even get that far, we have... Stephen in front of his own people with the face of an angel. Now, isn't that curious? 
And the way to explain this is by me going back to where I began and this whole idea of the cyclical nature of Hebrew literature, or really more specifically of the way that God tells the stories. He takes these things that happened in the past and retells them, and we're able to import what happened in the past, and it gives us greater uh, sense of what's going on now. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29, remember Moses in, in the Exodus, we have that whole idea of there's a transition in their identity from children of patriarchs to becoming a nation, that merging, and that Moses was the one that led that, and that one of the most significant events of that, of them becoming a nation, of them being in the wilderness, was Moses going to Mount Sinai and receiving the law, and uh, we get uh, uh, one little description of what takes place after that in Exodus 34, verse 29, where it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. When Moses came down from the mountain, his face shone, so, shone and it was clear to absolutely everybody that he had been talking to God. In fact, it shone so brightly that the people asked him to put a veil over his face. It was a visual testimony to what Moses had experienced, to what he was telling them, to the law that he was bringing to them. They could see with their own eyes that everything that Moses was doing at that time was directly that he was the tool, he was the means that God was using to bring this to be. That he, to bring his law, and that was a, an integral part of them becoming a nation. And the irony of this whole thing and all the interplay is just amazing. So you think through, okay, Moses brought these tablets, and where did the tablets go? The tablets were eventually placed into the Ark of the Covenant. And where did the Ark of the Covenant go? It was eventually placed inside this, the, uh, the, um, uh, the temple, so we, what we have in all of Jewish history, two of the single most treasured possessions that they have are the law and the temple. If you're going to point to a physical thing that they had, that they loved, that their identity was connected to, it was the law and the temple. Now you have... Okay, think big picture here. The exodus happens to create the nation of Israel that merges the people. Now you have the inverse taking place with Stephen, who is trying to tell his people that Christ was the true Israel, that he is the fulfillment of everything that the temple pointed to, and that this is a different time. They are disputing with him, and then in their disputing with him, in verse 13, look at what their accusation contains. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, so that being the Jerusalem and the temple, and the law. 
for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this lady. So they're going down the road of misusing his words to create a lie, to slander him. So they're taking the divinely authenticated message that Stephen is providing about the truth of Jesus Christ and the fact that he is saying that Christ is the fulfillment of all of that and that salvation is not only to the Aramaic-speaking Jews, but that it's also to the Greek-speaking Jews. So he's trying to give them words of life. And at the end of giving them these words, as they're disputing with him, they are looking at him, all who sat in the council, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The very same thing is happening. They should have known their history, which was this law that you love so much that's going to end up in the temple, all of that was authenticated in a visual way by the shining face of Moses. And now we have the inverse happening and we have the, authentic, authentic, uh, the authentication of that taking place by them looking intently at, Steve, at Stephen and realizing as well that everything that he has said is actually true. So the Answer then the two things that you can expect from God is first of all that he is going to carry you through and then the second thing is that the suffering has purpose. The suffering has purpose. You are the one responsible to expand the kingdom. You have the words of life. You can expect there to be some kind of blowback and praise God he will be honored. He will carry you through that and that suffering absolutely has purpose. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't do my part at this time, right here and right now, to make sure I was clear about that same spiritual wisdom that is supposed to be given to the world to expand his kingdom, and that is that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and if you are not a Christian, if you are not repented of your sin and placed your hope exclusively in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, then you are going to find yourself in a very precarious position, eternal damnation. If you are hanging on to, you might not think about it this way, but if you're hanging on to the law and the temple, that is to say that if in some way you believe in the last day, that as you are sitting before the judgment seat of God, that you are going to present some kind of good works, you know, that somehow you have kept the law, or that in some way, you know, God meets his people in a special way in the temple, if you also think that you are going to find some kind of special favor with God because you're just a swell person, you are going to be sorely disappointed and it's going to uh, cost you an eternity of judgment. Repent and believe. But if you are a child of God, hear it again. What this amazing account that we see of Stephen, that is you. God is expanding his kingdom today the same way that he expanded it with Stephen. He was the first fella to head over the fence, but there are all those that follow, and we are those that follow, and we are commanded to do it the same way. He expects you to exercise spiritual wisdom. He knows that you can expect to be persecuted. 
you can expect that he is going to help sustain you and that there is a purpose that he is, uh, that he has for that and that we can choose to be a willing participant. May God help us to do that very thing. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for what we see in the Old Testament. We thank you for that transition that we see and that you called a particular people to be yours. You made those particular people to be a nation, and then you took that whole thing and you dismantled, you eliminated the ethnic boundary, and instead you called all people, Aramaic-speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Gentiles of every tongue, every tribe, and every nation to be yours. Lord, we thank you that there was a Stephen in our lives that, that, that predated, that, that took a stand, that, that came to uh, communicate with us in some way that we needed to repent and to believe. And Lord, may we too be a participant in the exercise of expanding the kingdom. May we see that we need to be like Stephen so that we too can carry this divinely inspired and authenticated message into a world that needs to hear it, even if they're going to dispute with us. Give us strength. Give us peace in it. Give us the words to say. Carry us through it and show us and remind us that you are carrying out your purposes in it. In Christ's name, amen.